Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Meet the Press Reports, where we do a deep dive into a single topic each week. Over 50 years ago, two Americans were the first humans to step foot on the moon. It was in the midst of the international space race. Meet the Press has been there to cover the big moments. President Kennedy, a few days ago, laid before Congress his recommendations for a vast forward push in the conquest of outer space. Back then, it was just NASA. Now, there are many new major players in this decades-long game. Space exploration and travel is becoming a commercial industry. And the new industrial space ventures are bringing some cutthroat competition, sometimes at the cost of NASA's ongoing scientific missions. Private companies are now leveraging new technology to do what NASA once exclusively did itself. And they're going to make money while they're at it. The market is clearly pretty lucrative, and it forces the question... Has the space race really evolved from the pursuit of national pride to a bitter battle for plain old market control? My colleague, NBC News correspondent Jacob Ward, has more on this new space race. For generations, we've assumed that space was a place reserved for superpowers and for scientists. In the 1960s, the race to the moon between the Soviet Union and the U.S. had a clear winner, America. We sent up a rocket built by public servants and became the only nation to ever set foot on another heavenly body. The United States went on to explore the solar system with satellites. We've put robots on Mars, all funded by billions in taxpayer money. Touchdown confirmed. Coordinated by NASA. And today, the tradition of big, pure scientific endeavors continues. A satellite built in the U.S., the James Webb Space Telescope, the successor to Hubble, is about to give scientists all over the world the ability to see through time. We'll be able to look at that light coming from the very beginnings of the universe. The afterglow of yes. the formation of the right. universe. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is the bargain we think about when we think about space. Deployment is an intricate ballet. Mind-blowing science that costs mind-blowing money. This is a $9 billion program. You can't get that through a private company. It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly valuable, but not in a sort of immediate revenue-generating way, right? No, I'm, I've never heard of any NASA satellite that generates revenue, okay? <laughs> right, we're, we're a nonprofit, <laughs> big time. But there is serious profit to be made in space, and it no longer takes the resources of a superpower to get there. When you point a satellite at the stars, you can make scientific discoveries. When you point it at the Earth, you can make money. That's because every time you use GPS, check the weather forecast, or watch live sports, you're relying on satellites. And liftoff. Getting those satellites up there is big business. The private sector, and even NASA, pays companies like SpaceX to deliver equipment into orbit the way you and I pay a shipping company to deliver what we've bought online. And as the industry explodes, some of the top minds are leaving government agencies and heading to these well-funded companies, according to a congressional report. 
And all of those minds are figuring out how to make rocket launches a lot cheaper. Relativity is a lower-cost competitor to SpaceX that literally prints rockets. No, really, the company invented enormous 3D printers that use long strands of metal fused by lasers. In the old days, NASA took years to build a rocket. Relativity doesn't have to wait. It can bang out 95% of a rocket in just 60 days. Not only can this company make the big parts of a rocket, like a nose cone, they can also make all of the engine components, including intricate stuff inside that you could never have made the old way. It's really the feature in geometry. Relativity CEO Tim Ellis says he has pre-sold flights to a long list of clients, public and private. So the biggest market for uh, rockets is satellite companies. So we get paid by people like NASA, the DOD, so government entities. But there's also a huge commercial market that's hundreds of billions of dollars of companies that have telecom satellites and, that, and satellites that take pictures of Earth. So things like Google Maps, things like using telecom on an airplane or on a boat, uh, all, all use space-based communications. But Ellis says he started the company to do more than just deliver satellites into orbit. Our, our mission is to go to Mars, and I think we want to be contributors in, in that space as well. Three, two, one. We're not just building a rocket launch company. We're building the world's first and largest 3D printing company for aerospace. And at Relativity, you can almost see the cost of leaving the Earth come down in real time. NASA estimates its own rocket launches cost more than $100 million. What does NASA pay Relativity to go up in one of its 3D-printed rockets? The price is $12 million per launch today. But what if you can't afford a launch? Well, instead, you can come to a company like this and buy imagery that they get off of a constellation of 200 satellites that rings the Earth. They sell that imagery, updated every day, to customers like NASA, various nonprofits, NBC News, and thousands of other customers in 65 nations. It used to be you had to have your own satellite to get these sorts of pictures. But this company, Planet, has its own satellites and will sell you the pictures at a fraction of the price. Why are these satellites so affordable? Well, it's because they are so small. I know that these look like scale models. They are not. This is the actual size of the satellites. They're so small, they can fit into the unused spaces on existing rockets. They basically hitchhike their way into space. What does that make possible? Well, think about it this way. A country like Togo does not have its own space program. But with this kind of imagery, it can see climate change, its own agriculture, all sorts of invaluable stuff that would have been impossible a generation ago. What we're doing is we're scanning everything automatically and we've changed the business models really so that anyone that wants a picture, we've already taken it of your area. Will Marshall founded Planet on the same idea that drives all the tech giants. The company isn't selling satellites, it's selling data. Why is data from space so valuable? Well, think about it this way. If you're an agricultural company looking to make farms more productive, you could put up a drone and scan a couple hundred acres to see which plants look dry, sure. Or you could buy imagery from a satellite that can see 700 million acres for about 100 times less money. Affordable daily satellite imagery is also a vital weapon against climate change. Why? Because until now, we just didn't have enough data to see the change happening in real time. 
we can't stop deforestation if we're only measuring it every year if the deforestation happens on days. Same with emissions, same with, uh, with agriculture, and same with all of these things. You need data on the timescale of change to take care of it. The principle of Planet is that anyone, aside from terrorist organizations and embargoed nations, can buy these images. Clients can even task a handful of these larger satellites with special jobs and keep the footage exclusive for a period of time. Academics and private sector analysts using these satellites have pulled huge geopolitical threats into the public eye that previously only an intelligence agency would have known about. We found a set of about 100 nuclear weapons silos in China that were previously undisclosed. That's an important, you know, deal, of course. We actually found them in our scanning fleet and then took a closer look with these. And that was you selling that imagery to... In this case, think, think tanks that were taking a look at it. No, so not the government. Oh, not even the government was yeah, buying even, it. Yeah. And here's the thing. Once researchers put a secret like that out there, it can be shared with allies, with Congress, with all of us. That's just the new world as it is. It's going to be a more transparent one, and I think that's a good thing. Lift off. It is revolutionary that private companies are able to get into orbit and that the world's richest people are building and launching their own rockets. But what's really revolutionary is that the space race is over and corporations have won. It's what we can see of ourselves from space that has transformed getting there from a scientific and military race between superpowers into a worldwide money-making frenzy. And joining me now is NASA astronaut Dr. Jessica Meir. She was one of two women to participate in the first all-female spacewalk in 2019. It was during these seven hours outside the International Space Station that Dr. Meir also became the 15th woman ever to walk in space. Dr. Mir, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chuck. It's wonderful to be talking with you today. What is your biggest concern? I know you're very excited about all this private sector aspect of the space race, and you're benefiting from it. You may go up in some private flights, et cetera. What is the biggest concern, though, when the private sector subsumes the public sector? Well, you're right. There are a lot of competing financial priorities, of course, and those are things that our federal government has to take into account when they are, you know, figuring out all of the budgets, including that of NASA. But I don't think that we are going to necessarily be overcome by all of these private companies. I think the key thing for us at NASA is that we see us working together as a complementary relationship. And I think that's really necessary given where we are, especially with those competing financial priorities like you talked about. You know, back in the Apollo days, 4% of our budget 4% of GDP was spent on the Apollo missions. Now the entire NASA budget's only about 0.04%. That's not just human spaceflight, that's all of NASA. So we need this. We need these partnerships with private companies. We need these international partnerships like we've been doing on the International Space Station. That to me is just realistically the way that we will continue to explore and continue to further our presence as humans in space. We don't have any nationalized airlines. Do you expect actually NASA to go away over time? Well, I hope not, because I want to keep getting my paycheck, <laughs> but we'll have to see what happens. You know, as I was saying, I, I don't think it will go away. I think that we will continue to operate in this type of partnership. I think we still need these larger government-backed organizations for some of the more risky long-term prospects. So, for example, right now, by leveraging these partnerships with commercial partners like SpaceX and Boeing to concentrate on what we call near-Earth orbit, low-Earth orbit for the International Space Station, we can use 
are more limited NASA assets to go toward the next destination. So that's what we've been doing. SpaceX and Boeing have been building these spacecraft to keep getting astronauts to the space station. NASA has been focusing on building the Orion capsule to go even further, the next step beyond that. So I think you'll continue to see, I hope that we'll continue to see a partnership really where we can work together to offset some of those costs and then still fulfill all of these objectives. You know, one of the ways that I think we all decided the Cold War was over is when astronauts and cosmonauts, when you when when the Russians and the Americans started sharing some of this technology, giving each other rides, uh, uh, sharing this stuff. It certainly, though, looks like now we're back into a competition with China. Um, describe the relationship we have in space with China, how competitive versus how cooperative. You know, that's a really good question. I think it also draws back to that Apollo time frame. I think you and I both know that the only reason we went to the moon when we did was because we had that space race, that Cold War. We had that political motivation, which then spurred on getting the right amount of resources behind it. So I've actually been kind of hoping that what you call that kind of competition or watching what China has been doing in space in the last many years would maybe help us with that, would give us that driver again, make it more more than just a space exploration, give us that, that driver to push even further. And I haven't really seen that happen, at least not directly so far. So we're continuing to watch. You know, I can say I'm definitely supportive of everything that China is doing. They are definitely pulling off some impressive feats with their space station, with their astronauts, and also with their rovers going to Mars, for example. So there's a lot going on right now. And I hope that perhaps either the competition propels both of us to mm -hmm. keep succeeding and to get there. And then in the future, you know, right now, we at NASA are not collaborating with the Chinese. We still are collaborating with the Russians, with the Europeans, the Japanese, and the Canadians. Um, but we don't have that partnership with the Chinese right now. So whether it's through competition that drives us and propels both of us further, or eventually in the future, if there is some kind of collaboration, I think both of those things would be very positive, would be assets to the exploration of all of these bodies. Why is there not a base on the moon yet? Is that because of technology? Or was it because we decided to, you know, the Cold War ended, and then maybe had the Cold War continued, we would have based the moon. But because the Cold War ended, we didn't want to spend our money that way. Yeah, that's right. I think it's definitely the latter, in my opinion. You know, I, we have the technology, we have the know-how. If we could do it back then, then we can certainly do it today. It's not easy to go to the moon. We know that. I think that's why we're not there. If it were still easy, we would have still been able to maintain that presence. But we do have a very strong program to go back to the moon right now, the Artemis program. And this new administration is definitely supporting that. We will be sending the first woman and the first person of color to the surface of the moon hopefully in the next few years. So I'm really happy to see that kind of emphasis put on it again. All right. You have some amazing perspective on the pandemic. And the, what mm -hmm. I would say is amazing is that you left uh, for your tour in space uh, in 2019 and you came back and parachuted into a pandemic. Um, just describe what that, I mean, I can't think of anything more surreal, but you tell it in your words. 
Yeah, absolutely, Chuck. That was one of the really most memorable parts of my mission. Like you said, we we launched in September of 2019. Nobody had heard of COVID-19. While I was on the space station, we watched the pandemic emerge and unfold across the entire planet. And a lot of that felt a little bit surreal from us. You know, we are still getting some information up there. We're, of course, not bombarded by it, like on your cell phones here on Earth. But we're getting the news. We're talking to people back home. But to be so distant from it, you know, part of us, we kind of felt like we were on a movie scene. You know, they pan to the space station and then the, and there are a few people up there and the entire planet gets wiped out by a meteor or something. And it was, you know, we joked about that, but the gravity of what was happening was, was really profound for us. And then to come back in April, which was really, you know, things were quite bad here in the U.S. and all over the world, that was quite a time to return. Our colleague, Chris Cassidy, came up to the space station just about a week and a half before we left. And he told us, he said, look, I know you guys know what's happening, but you really need to prepare yourself mentally because you're absolutely going back to a completely different planet. And that was so true. Well, the whole reason you're doing this is for the potential backup plan for Earth as it is. I guess we got a, a little bit of a uh, a preview of what that feeling may be like. Absolutely. Uh, Jessica Meir, um, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, meet the Press Reports. All right. Thank you very much, Chuck. Take care. And up next, finding NASA's place in the universe. I'm joined by former NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden and NBC News correspondent Tom Costello. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back. Space flight is going private. So what does that mean for our future as a whole? Joining me now to discuss this are former NASA Administrator Charles Bolden and my NBC News colleague, Tom Costello. And Tom, I want you to kick this off because when you first started covering space for NBC News, you were covering an agency, NASA. Now this is an industry. No, that's exactly right. And it was in 2005 when I when I assumed this beat. It was the return to flight mission after we had the uh, the, the most recent terrible uh, disaster involving astronauts coming back to Earth. Um, and what was interesting then is there were there was the talk about handing this over to the private sector, the low Earth missions or the low orbit orbit missions, I should say. And there were so many naysayers, especially Elon Musk. People were saying that kid can't build a reputable good because back then he was in his late 30s. I yeah, guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, kid, and yeah. this guy doesn't know anything about starting up a real legitimate space business. And, you know, NASA has the has the legacy and the tradition and the history the history and the brains and the know-how. But look where we are today. SpaceX is dominating, and Boeing, the traditional company that got us to the moon, 
they're the ones who are really struggling today. You know, almost two years uh, since they had that terrible uh, disaster uh, when they were trying to get their own unmanned vehicle up into space and compete with SpaceX. They still haven't gotten it right. They still haven't flown the thing. SpaceX now is on, I think, their fourth. They're about to do their fourth crewed mission to the space station. Charlie, you were at NASA and essentially uh, you, you were the administrator to help begin this transition mm-hmm. from where NASA's the, 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 I guess, now a facilitator into space rather yeah. than the primary yeah. source. Is it going the way you imagined? Or, 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 or uh, what, is, what did you think this would look like? Ooh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I thought it would look like where we are now, but I thought it would happen sooner, to oh, be quite honest. I thought I was, it was going to be faster. Um, not initially. I, I was the naysayer. I was, um, you know, we, we Tom talks about the naysayers. I was among the naysayers. You were was, a, you were a SpaceX skeptic. I was the uh, I was a real SpaceX skeptic, and I was known around the the White House as the rogue administrator uh, hmm. because I didn't toe the line, and I I didn't I didn't go along with the idea. What changed your mind? Um, getting to know the people. Uh, having the opportunity to bring them in and help to facilitate their success by building a team between NASA and SpaceX and helping them to understand that in spite of what they may have thought, they were not in competition with us. Um, They were in competition with Blue Origin Mm -hmm. and Boeing and all these other companies. We were all partners. We needed them, uh, and they had to have us. Without us, they weren't going anywhere. Elon will tell you, I think, mm-hmm. um, had he not gotten the contract for commercial cargo, they were done. Uh, they had not had a success. They had had the Falcon 1, and they lost Falcon 1 after Falcon 1 after <laughs> mm-hmm. Falcon 1. And he came back after winning the first contract right. for providing cargo to space. They had a rough start. Their first flight almost ended in disaster for the vehicle because right. it didn't work when they separated from the launch vehicle. And it took all the assets that the U.S. had could, could bring to bear communications-wise to help them and two young software engineers who I think Gwen Shotwell sent them off to a corner and said, don't come back until you figure this out. Tom, how much money does... Does the SpaceX and Blue Origins of the world think there is to be made in space? Well, I listen, both of them, and I've talked to both Bezos and Elon Musk, and they both believe that, you know, what what was that old saying from Buzz Lightyear, right, to infinity and beyond? They believe that there is just so much potential out there. Uh, Mining, for example, and going to the moon and going, mining on the moon, I should say, going to Mars, for example, they think there's a lot of money to be made out there, and they both want to. They both want to ride that rocket, and they want to be the ones who design the rocket. I, I got to say one thing though that I'm curious about, and maybe General Bolder can can answer this. You know, you've seen the SpaceX of the world and Blue Origin, and for that matter, even Virgin Galactic have kind of taken some of the brain power yeah. away from NASA because they can pay for it. Well, they can pay bigger salaries. And w- this has been a, and that's good. Th- I was just okay, but this has been a concern. Look, this yeah. is a concern when it comes to. Yeah regulating big tech if they have all the best minds you know is is a nasa brain drain going to cost the u.s government uh i don't see a nasa brain drain to be quite honest i think it's really good that um i think spacex and blue origin and virgin galactic they're all doing as well as they're doing right now because of the infusion of of old think if you will but people who understand the system uh can help them uh you know this is a game of compromise. Right. 
Um, and so I think if they had stuck with the original crew from SpaceX, all the young uh, 20-somethings who insisted that they didn't need to do the kind of software testing that NASA did because they didn't make mistakes. They found out on the first flight. Yes, we do. I want to get to the issue of sort of rules in yeah. space. This is an issue here that was came up on Meet the Press in 1958. Take a look. This was Werner von Braun. I feel while we may not even want to control it completely, we may we have definitely an interest in denying control to the others. So that was the head of our space program back in the day, denying control to others. The rules of the road in space right now feel like it's the Wild West. How's it going to work? I don't think it's, it may feel like it's the Wild West, but people gradually are coming to understand space, situational awareness. Um, somebody's got to manage, otherwise really bad things happen. Um, and I think we'll get there. You know, the Department of Commerce here in the United States is very slow to come into their own and do what they should have been doing a decade ago. Uh, the FAA is doing the same, but I'm encouraged by watching the way that, in some cases, they've taken NASA people in, and uh, and they're getting to where they need to be. It, it it's not going to be a, it, we won't survive if it's the wild wild west. You know, but who's? I guess the question is, Tom, who's who's watching out to make sure people are not trying to do nefarious things up there? Honestly, I'm not sure right now there is anybody who's doing that. I mean, I think you can hope that various countries will act in, you know, the, the world's best interest. But that doesn't always. I, well, that there is a space help. treaty. But the question is, are we going to see it expand? Well, but, you know, you're asking for utopia. I know. And um, and there is no one who's going to see that nobody's doing nefarious things. We're going to hope. I'm the eternal optimist. Tom and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, we've got to hope that that the human being in us, the good in us, will win out. We space lives on conventions, not on rules and laws. Now we've got to get there. We're the fastest growing part of the law today, if you go to law schools, right. is space law because we didn't have we're any. We're establishing it. We're right. establishing space law. Do you yeah. know the first human voice on Mars? Oh come on, Very whose quickly. is it? <laughs> General Charles Bolton. Is that right? His voice has been and the first human voice. Don't ask me what I said. Somebody said, what did you say? I Mars. said it was too long. <laughs> to get whatever there? Or the trip? No. Whatever, it was. The, whatever, whatever the message was. It was too long. <laughs> well, here's, here's what wasn't too long. This segment, I wish we had more time. Uh, Charlie Bolden. Uh, Thanks very Marine General. Thank Good to see you. Tom Costello. Thank you both. Look, up next, a waste of space. This is what I'm obsessed with. It's just all the literal garbage we've left in orbit. And now scientists are saying we need to drain the cosmic swamp. There are plenty of companies dedicated to getting to space, as we've been just telling you about. But it's probably about time that we get a company dedicated to cleaning space. Call it the Got Junk for Space. Space debris has been piling up in Earth's orbit since the launch of the very first satellites. And as of today, there are 3,000 dead satellites that are just circling our planet. Now, there are tools that have been dropped by astronauts circling our planet. There's pieces of metal that have become detached. And in some cases, there are leftovers from tests of space weapons. During the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union both demonstrated their ability to blow up satellites. By how? Blowing up satellites. China and India, they're repeating these experiments with their own satellites. More junk, mind you. So it's not just the big stuff, though. Small pieces of debris are hard to track. And they can actually be very dangerous. At speeds over 17,000 miles per hour, every little piece of debris can be deadly to somebody up there or a satellite up there. So today there are believed to be up to 34,000 pieces of space junk that are bigger than 10 centimeters. 
It's not like a broom and a magnet are going to solve this problem. Researchers have proposed, believe it or not, using electromagnetic waves to nudge the trash back to Earth because it would burn up on re-entry. Or perhaps using a giant whip to remove the trash. Or even a test device that shoots a net at space junk and reels it in. None of these projects are ready for wide-scale use yet, but they're serious projects because let's hope there's some solution soon. Because on Earth, one man's trash may be another man's treasure, but in space, one man's trash may be another man's tragedy. That's all we have for Meet the Press reports this week. Next week on the show, when Donald Trump took over the Republican Party in 2016, he also took over one of the core constituencies of the GOP, white evangelicals. Well, now some of the more religious evangelicals around the country are trying to figure out where they go from here. I'll see you next week and this Sunday on Meet the Press. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.